All right. If you guys uh, would like, why don't you open your Bibles right now to the book of Acts, very last chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. If you guys don't own a Bible, keep this. It's our gift to you guys. Acts. So we've been in a series in the book of Acts. Uh, today is the last sermon, like I mentioned. Uh, 74 sermons in all. So it's a long, long series. Probably one of the longer ones I've, I've ever done. Um, but we're, we're done today. This is it. This is it. This is the last one. Um, but I want to jump in. We're going to read through the entire chapter as we've done the past several weeks. We've kind of jokingly described it as story time with Pastor B because uh, these last handful of chapters is really a, a unique form of uh, Bible story in the New Testament. Uh, it's what's typically called narrative. And so it's just long. It reads like a, like, like a grand narrative. And that's, that's kind of what we've been wanting to allow the storyline to just sink into our hearts. And again, uh, to do that, it, it means that we read through a very large passage of Scripture, which in some ways may be a little bit unfamiliar or, uh, 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 to some of you. But again, the invitation for you is to maybe think about uh, ad- adopting a new way of thinking, considering Scripture. Uh, obviously, it requires a little bit of a broader attention span to think and listen and hear. So as we read through this, I'll make a handful of comments, and then I will finish with a handful of thoughts or things to consider. Uh, the way I would just simply describe it as four different themes. It's not the only amount of themes that are, I think, throughout the book, but I think these are predominant themes that are throughout the book of Acts. So sort of a book of Acts in summary. That's kind of what we'll think about in terms of closing. So uh, let's jump in. Book of Acts, chapter 28, uh, where we left off uh, the week before is that, or the couple weeks ago, that Paul was on a shipwrecked island uh, as he was kind of a prisoner. He was making his way to Rome. Uh, Paul was a guy that had a life that was radically transformed by God. Rather than being a persecutor of churches and Christianity, he now became one of the foremost church planters of Christianity. And uh, as a result of that, one of the main uh, elements of Paul's message that the majority of religious folk bristled against was the fact that God actually invites and welcomes all people, that the message of God's healing and hope are not just for a, an elect uh, or an elite group of Jewish people, off in some distant land called Jerusalem, that God's hope is for the entire world. And this is what makes Paul's message so unique and in some ways very, very offensive to a lot of people that live their entire life trying to be like uber-spiritual, and uber-religious, and yet the message of saying, hey, no, no, God will accept you for who you are, not for all these unique religious things that you do. Like for someone that lives their entire life focused on all these things that they do, to basically be told, hey, it has no value. That's offensive. To basically be told, look, you, you know, or be raised in a culture, an idea, or a familiar state that says you have to do all these things, eat a certain way, dress a certain way, wear certain hats, do certain things, uh, follow certain festivals, and so on and so forth. To basically be told, like, all these things may have value in terms of your understanding of God, but they don't have any value in terms of God's acceptance or approval of you. Um, that was offensive to a lot of people, and so they wanted to see Paul killed, and so Paul becomes sort of a victim, if you would, of the state, gets thrown in prison. Now he's been on a ship being brought to Rome to where he's going to be uh, on trial. So that's where we enter in the story. I'm going to jump in. First of all, I'll show you a map. 
um, kind of show you a little bit about where we're going, your tribal, tribal itinerary, here, here it is. So if you can see Paul start off in the lower right-hand corner, Jerusalem, Caesarea, makes his way all the way up the coast. You can see that, follow it all the way. Squiggly lines right there is probably around the shipwreck. Paul ends up on this island of Malta, and that's where we're at. Verse 1, chapter 28, starts off with this. I'll basically break it down into three main movements. The first movement, we'll see verses 1 through 10 are the miracles on Malta. Uh, verses 11 through 16, we'll see Paul's arrival at Rome. And then finally, verses 17 to 31, the final movement uh, is what I would just describe as Rome and, and beyond. To Rome and beyond. And so that's how we'll finish the book. So, verse 1 says this. And after we were brought safely through, uh, we had learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and they welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So, um, it's interesting some of the language that we might miss here. Different translations might say a couple different things, but he describes his people as natives. Some of your other translations might say, anyone have the word barbarian? Anybody? That might be like King James. It's actually the Greek word barbarian. And so this is a word that uh, Roman people would basically use or give to anybody that was non-Roman. It was, it was a basic way of saying, look, you're non-cultured, you're very primitive, you're barbarian. Like, you are uncouth as society. And so typically the idea was that people that were barbarians were sort of the uncivilized people that were, you know, untamed in culture and society. And what's interesting is the way that Luke is telling this story is he actually undoes that narrative, Check this out. He says, and the natives, what'd they do? Scalped us? Beheaded us? Cooked us into a stew? No, he says, they, they, they showed us incredible kindness. He's basically rewriting a narrative, and he's saying, hey, there's people that we typically write off because they fit a particular status that society labels them. It's not who they are. Because we actually found them to be unusually kind to us, and so they Make a fire for them. They're on a beach. Obviously, they're all wet. If you remember the last chapter, the ship actually broke apart. They are coming to shore on, like, planks of wood. And uh, verse 2, it goes on to say, the native people, they showed us unusual kindness, and they kindled a fire for us. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, no Doubt. So imagine the whispering going on, right? This Twitter was around back then, and immediately tw tweets would be going out. No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature in the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time, and saw no misfortune come upon him. They changed their minds, and then they said, this man is a god. Wow. In one sentence, we went from, this guy's a murderer. Justice is out to just totally crush and destroy this guy. Now he's a god. So this, this, is, this is amazing, because you know what this does? This actually underscores a really false theology that maybe some of you have. Mike just dropped. This is some of your theology. Some of you think like this. You think because bad things have happened to you, it's because of evil that you've done. Conversely, you think because somehow you make it through a bad circumstance and everything goes well for you, it's because you're God-like or you are blessed by God because you have done good. You've earned your place 
this is, this is what's commonly known as pagan theology. It's pagan because it's not Christian. It's not, it's not true. It's a myth. And, and many of us, it shows up in ways like this. Like we look at our lives and we think that somehow God throughout the entire existence of our lives based upon circumstances that have happened in our lives or bad circumstances or bad fortune happens to us, we tend to think that God is somehow mildly um, displeased with us. Just, just go through life. I've given this, given this analogy before. It's like God is, is, a, is a landlord who owns the property in which we live on and, and yet we don't even pay our bills. We're not even good tenants. We only take care. And we're always worried that someday this mildly intolerant, frustrated, and upset landlord slash God is going to be done with us and kick us out. So what we do, we work really hard. We conjure up enough money to pay 25 bucks on our $1,000 rent, hope that somehow this will like earn our keep. Guys, this is not the God that we worship. The God that we worship is a God that actually gives blessings in place of our sinful actions. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus comes and takes our, he was crushed for our, for our sins, for our iniquities. Uh, God rescues us through Jesus. And so uh, what we see here in this little drama or this narrative that's taking place here that, again, this pagan theology comes out through these people, again, which in some ways is very synonymous with modern-day theology and ideas and ideologies that went on. In verse 7, it goes on to say, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men, uh, the chief man of the island, his name was Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And then Paul visited him and he prayed, putting his hands on him and he healed him. Now, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases, they also came and they were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whoever we needed or whatever we needed. So what's fascinating to me about this whole situation is, uh, I mean, there's a handful of things that we can look at. But um, one, at this particular point, um, Paul, who is a prisoner, is totally in charge here. Do you get that? Like, it's clear that Luke, the narrator, who's kind of telling us the story, is like, without question, hands down, the one who's like in charge and large on this island is not Julius, the Roman soldier, the guy who actually has, you know, the authority, but it's actually Paul because he has the approval and the authority of God. And what I love about this is that Paul is not waiting around for permission from the dignitaries to determine, should I follow God? Should I pray for the sick? Should I be a blessing? Paul's just like, this is who I am. I'm going to operate based upon who I am, and I want to be aware. So I, I love the fact that Paul is very aware of circumstances. Paul is not sitting around as a victim. I mean, he could have been. I mean, think about this. Again, he is in the middle of a shipwreck. I would imagine his body is probably pretty bruised and messed up. On top of that, as he's gathering wood for a fire, which, which hello, I mean, Paul's already like done some pretty amazing things. He's the one that actually, through his words, rescued this entire group of people. And Paul's out gathering woods, wood for the fire. Then he gets bit by a snake. And then he goes from being, in one sentence, uh, an evil murder to a god, all in one fell swoop. And, and now here's Paul. And he's, he's not a victim. He's not sitting around feeling sorry for himself in a pity party, fetal position on the sandy beach. Paul is like, look, there's a guy that needs prayer. Can, can I pray for you? 
Paul's totally in tune, totally aware, totally present of the variety of needs and hurts and wounds and people that are going through challenging circumstances around him. And there's something about that that I think is uh, exemplary in the life of Paul. And so Paul connects with these people, prays for them. Uh, it opens up kind of a very unique ministry opportunity where people are coming out. They're bringing their friends. Uh, Jesus literally is becoming, his name is becoming great, not by some publicity stunt, but by word of mouth of transforms lives, transformed lives. That's how it works, guys. Like, this is how it works. Be a blessing as you live your life as a follower of Jesus, wherever God's put you, be aware, be present with those that are around you. Be aware, be in tune with the hurts and the needs. Don't be afraid to ask to pray for people. Don't be afraid. Don't be living in a status of uh, discouragement or fear or worry. Ask God to give you the strength and the power and the ability to be able to do and be whatever it is. Every one of you guys have a story to tell. Paul had a story. He was redeemed by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. And this, this has some level of currency that God used in Paul's life to be a blessing to other people. So we see this really unique way in which Paul did that. Let's jump on into the next little sweep or movement that we see around verse 11. We see that Paul's arrival into Rome. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island. It was a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods or Gemini. Uh, I have a little uh, an image of a ship on the very bottom here. It was probably a grain ship from Alexandria. Uh, on probably either side of the ship would have been these carved images um, again, these were, these were pagan people. They had hoped and believed in certain pagan entities to protect them. And so that's probably what's going on right here. It says, uh, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived to Regulum. Regium. And there one uh, day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petuli. Uh, there we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and all the brothers there. And when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. Again, these are significant seaports back in the day. And on, the, uh, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. And when they came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that had guarded him. Now, this probably would have been what we would call like under house arrest. Paul would have been um, bound uh, by way of chain to this Roman soldier. So imagine, you know, this is, the, don't imagine Paul just, you know, chilling on a beach house. This is Paul, you know, in house arrest, uh, chained to a Roman soldier. So yeah, he had a lot of freedoms, but yes, he was still also a prisoner of the state. But what's really fascinating to me about this particular passage is how Luke uh, tells the continuation of the Jesus story. And he uses this phrase, and the word that he uses in verse 14, he says, and there we found brothers. Um, the word that's actually used there is kind of a fascinating word because throughout the book of Acts, we'll see kind of this uh, um, switching of uh, words to define the followers of Jesus. You'll find in some cases they're described as disciples, so a disciple would be this uh, horizontal or this, uh, this vertical relationship to God. They are disciples of Jesus. But the word or the usage of the word uh, brothers uh, or brethren, maybe some of you are better, better translation. So it's, it's not you know, gender specific, just male men, brothers. But brethren, meaning uh, male, female, we're, we're all part of the same family. That's the idea that's going on here. Uh, there's no doubt that to whom Luke is referring are Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people. Because it's in the region of Rome. 
And what's fascinating about this is you see this, this movement where the question could be naturally asked, well, who are the brethren of Jewish followers of Jesus? Other Jewish followers of Jesus? Of course, because if you're a Jew, uh, you would call other Jews, hey, you're my brother. We're, we're all sons of Abraham. But what about somebody that is technically not a biological son of Abraham? Who, how do we relate to them? How do we describe them? And that becomes a question that kind of arises throughout the book of Acts. And not only that, it gets a little bit more nuanced because uh, I think around Acts chapter 6, somewhere on there, we're introduced to a sort of a sect of Jews. We're called, they're called the Grecian Jews, uh, meaning these are, these are Jews that love Yahweh, love Jesus as well, but they're not from Jerusalem, meaning they dress like uh, regular culture at large, maybe wearing, you know, togas and their hair is cut differently. They don't look like your typical or stereotypical Jew that you would see walking around the streets in Jerusalem, meaning they didn't keep the very same types of customs. These people uh, are used, the language that's used to describe them are brethren. That shouldn't be shocking to us, but when we begin to move into the book of Acts, the question becomes a little bit more sticky. Like, how do we respond to non-Jewish people, Gentile people? That becomes one of the most climactic moments in the book of Acts because some are actually advocating and saying we shouldn't accept them as brother because or unless they go through the process of circumcision and keeping the variety of ceremonial rites and so on. But by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is actually saying, hey, and we hung out with the brothers. You see this like circle enlarging, getting bigger. Is that a word? Enlarging? 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 I like that. That's it's a new word. You guys can use it. Make sure you give me credit. But we see the circle enlarging, getting bigger, where Paul is basically welcoming uh, even people that normally would have never been associated or identified as brethren now are, are brethren. Like, this is really profound. Again, this might be something that might be missed by many of us as we just simply read it. But to those first century readers, when they would have read this, they would have been like, whoa, those Roman people living just outside of the city of Rome Total, straight-up, Gentile, non-Jewish. They eat pork, eat bacon, dress just like everybody else. They don't look Jewish, act Jewish. They're not Jewish. Those are our brethren. Because that's what Luke says. They're brethren. So as we go on in the story, uh, we wrap it up with uh, some closing thoughts in verse 17 as we enter into kind of the last final sweep or movement. Verse 17 says, And after three days... He, that's Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. So what, what Paul does is he recognizes, and as he typically does, he obviously has a lot of freedom. Even though he's a prisoner of the state, uh, he's been given a lot of freedom, again, which says a lot about the type of character that Paul was, uh, to have earned enough trust from the Roman uh, leaders to say, we like this guy, we can trust this guy, let's let him do whatever he wants. So Paul's like, what I really want is I would love to be able to hang out and chat with my, my Jewish brothers, you know, bring them in. So they bring them to Paul. And again, like what Paul typically would do, because Paul was a rabbi. Remember, Paul was part of the elite sect of Judaism called Pharisee. Um, Paul would be able to, to talk shop with these guys, like be able to connect with these guys on their level because he, he knew their language. He was familiar with the various ways and nuances of Judaism, which they were. So Paul always was looking for these unique angles to, to share the gospel with those that were his biological uh, comrades. Um, so he calls them together. 
And it says, and brothers, though I had done nothing against the people or the customs of the fathers, uh, yet I was delivered a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty or set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, that was the Jews obviously of Judea, uh, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I had asked to see you, to speak with you, since it was because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So again, Paul is making reference to the fact that, that I'm in chains. And so he probably would have lifted up his hands and be like, I am a prisoner of the state, really because I still have this hope that God is going to do something fresh and new within you guys, my, my brothers uh, in, in uh, Abraham. Verse 21 says, and then they said, uh, we have noticed no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here uh, has reported or spoken evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what, is, what your views are. Uh, for with regard to this sect, we have known everywhere that it is spoken uh, against. So uh, what Paul is discovering, so Paul goes there assuming that word about his troublemaking uh, amongst the Jews would have already spread into Rome, kind of like his you know, reputation preceded him. So Paul's assuming the fact that all these guys know about me, so he gathers together, he's like, hey, I just want to check out, you know, test the waters. Have you guys heard anything about me? And they're like, no, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm Paul the Apostle, and here's the situation, and so on. And they're like, no, we haven't heard anything about this. But you're associated with that whole Jesus thing? We'd love to hear about that, because we have heard everywhere about this Jesus. We haven't heard about you, but we've heard about this Jesus thing. So we're really curious to know a little bit more about that. Paul's like wringing his hands like, yes, this is awesome. Paul was always looking for these unique occasions to share Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was Paul's life. Do you, do you know that you and I, one, one of the most incredible ways, uh, let me put it this way. What you speak about most is going to either betray or identify what the greatest treasure in your life is. I, I can't even get a little bit further. I can, this might be getting into prying, but I would even go so far as to say your internet browsing cache or your YouTube history is either going to betray or reveal one of the greatest treasures in your life, the things that you value most. I can tell you my... For example, my YouTube history um, has a lot of stuff on photography. I love photography. has a lot of videos on surfing and a lot of worship videos and a lot of teaching videos. Like, that, that's it. Like, because I love surfing and I love photography, but I also love Jesus. And, but the fact of the matter is, is what we say, how we spend our money. For Paul, the sum total of his life was Jesus. Paul's always angling, looking for occasion, looking for opportunity to make most, make much of Christ. So that's what we see Paul doing here. Verse uh, 23, I think is where we're at. He says, and when he had appointed a day for him to come, uh, we came to him lodging in his uh, great number. Greater number, he says, from morning till evening, uh, expounding to them testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. I love that. He's like, he's not just expounding. He's not just throwing out raw data and information. He's like, I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to help you to see that, that, that Jesus actually, there's a compelling case to put your confidence in Jesus. Have you discovered that? Have you discovered that there's a compelling, now, not just simply it all adds up and it just makes a great, but the fact that Jesus truly is 
the fulfillment of everything that God set out to do. That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to present to them this compelling, beautiful case, reality of who Jesus is. And then uh, goes down about verse uh, 24. It says, and some of them, they were convinced by what he had said. And others, they disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul and they made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, which is, a reference in Isaiah 6, which ironically, interestingly enough, I just discovered this. Now, did you know that in the year that King Uzziah died, which is the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, so the very year in which this prophecy is being stated, some several hundred years, uh, I had heard that was the very same year in which Rome was actually being founded. So the very same year in which Rome was being founded, this very place in which Paul is writing from right now, was the very same year in which this prophecy is going to be penned. It goes on to say this. It says, through the Holy Spirit, Isaiah sp- spoke and says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this time, or for this people's heart will grow dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, and lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn that I would heal them. It's a reference to this Old Testament passage, but in short, it's basically like this. The fact is that there are people that can hear about Jesus and theoretically, cognitively understand that he was a historical guy, but in reality, their heart really has no compulsion, no love, no affection for Jesus, that may be some of you guys right now. And I'll go so far as to even say this. Some of the most dangerous places to be in your life is somebody, if you fit this profile, you grew up in the church, you grew up hearing about Jesus, the sum total of your life. You could be some of the most precarious positions of your life because you've grown so accustomed to Jesus. He's not compelling to you. He's not beautiful to you. Meaning you see him, but you don't, see him. You hear him, but you really don't hear him. You don't hear him with ears that are open with a sense of delight and awe and sense of saying, yes, Lord, to everything he is and everything that he says. So it's possible to know certain data and information and statistics and idea and historical facts about Jesus, but not be ravished by him. That's what Paul is saying. Is that you, got, you guys, this is what the prophet says and this is what salvation really is. It's God taking the blinders off of your eyes and seeing Jesus for who he is and all of his glorious brilliance and beauty and amazingness to where you are blown away and you have catch, captured a vision of Christ to where nothing else in this world, no matter how beautiful, no matter how glorious, no matter how compelling, no matter how amazing, no matter how flashy, it, it will never hold the sustained level of amazement as, as Jesus. That's what salvation is. It's God opening your eyes to where you can have everything in this world and yet at the end of the day you look at it and just be like, none of it compares to the brilliance and the beauty of Christ. So we finish this. It says in verse 26, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So this, uh, a lot of scholars would basically say, this is sort of the summary verse of the entire book of Acts. It's like, it starts out Jesus saying, hey, you guys in Jerusalem, this small uh, 
cowardly, scared, frightened community people living in Jerusalem, fearing for your life, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world. And people that you would have never envisioned are going to meet the resurrected Jesus. You're going to be part of this movement. And Luke ends with this. He's like, yes, this movement began in Jerusalem, ended to the uttermost parts of the world. And it finishes with this, and I'm done. Verse 30, he lived there for two whole years at his own expense, meaning he paid for it. Thank you, Rome. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. You might be like, that's, that's an odd, anticlimactic ending. Like, there's no like, conclusion. And if you have assumed that, you're totally right. There is no conclusion. Like, that's an odd way to finish a book or conclude a book. And most scholars would agree there's, a, there's an intentional purpose for this because the book of Acts is still being written. It's still going on. Where? In your life. In the people you interact with. In the people that you are connected to. The Masons, you guys, are on campus. Cal Poly, serving Jesus, making disciples. Actually, the, the whole role of you guys are serving Jesus, making disciples on the campus of Cal Poly and others. We have people that are in Brazil serving Jesus, planting churches, people in China doing the same thing, people in Hungary and Europe planting churches, meeting Jesus, people that got saved in our church, in this community, discipled in this community, sitting in various places just like you are sitting right now. But something happened in their lives. Their eyes were open. They saw Jesus as the greatest treasure of their life and to the point where they could say, nothing else matters. I'll give my life to this resurrected Christ. Preaching the gospel, sharing the kingdom, making disciples, opening up one's house, showing hospitality, carrying on the mission. That's what it looks like. All of us are this continuation of this incredible book. Now, in conclusion, I want to finish with just Four themes and four takeaways, if you want to think of it this way, and I'll be quick on these. I'll wrap it up just by looking at it like this. Number one is we see that throughout the book, Jesus, again, Jesus obviously is the centermost uh, person of this entire book. Number one, Jesus heals and saves. We see the most uh, profound character of the story is the book of Acts, or in the book of Acts is Paul the Apostle, that Jesus healed and saved and rescued. I heard someone once describe it this way. At the end of the day, at the end of time, the number one question really that you can ever really think about is that if Jesus were to ask you, like if we were to ask you right now, again, there's, this is not scripture, so don't be like, well, where's the passage that says this? This is not. All right, but in theory, it goes something like this. If Jesus were to come to you and were to say one thing to you, he would be something like this. Will you let me heal you? Will you let me heal you? For those of us that are self-reliant or doubters or haters or skeptics or without a belief in God, the answer to that would obviously be like, no, I'm self-reliant. I can fix myself. I can take care of my ways. I can heal myself. I can get myself out of this bind. But to those that recognize, because they have eyes to see, that recognize, I really am broken. I'm messed up. I'm lost. I'm confused. I don't feel a sense of hope in this world. To those, we would say, yes, Jesus, 
heal me, save me, rescue me. So we see that Jesus, number one, gives new identity. New identity. You are a new person. Paul, without question, was a brand new person. Secondly, we see that Jesus welcomes all. And again, this is a theme that kind of is started from the very beginning and ends throughout the entire book, or is, I should say embedded throughout the entire book, is this idea that God is forming this brand new fam- families. Welcome all. Now again, if you were a Jew living in first century Jerusalem, um, and you were raised and trained in this very strong, staunch theological framework of Judaism, the thought of actually God accepting someone like a Gentile who is not only far from God, I mean, and I, and I mean like um, geographically, meaning they live all the way on the island of Crete, which is, you know, how many hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. You know, we live right next to the temple. We live right next door to where God lives. Like God, God's in our neighborhood. It's not in your neighborhood. You guys live in Crete, and you guys wear togas, and you guys wrestle nude, and you guys go work out at the gymnasium, and you eat bacon, and like, how dare you even think that you have any stake with God? But the whole message of the gospel, or the book of Acts, is that, no, no, God even has grace extended to those people, to those people who fits the bill in our lives as those people. Yeah, there's grace there's grace extended. All, all are welcomed at the table that God lays out. All are invited to come. All are invited to receive the grace that God is freely giving. All are invited to allow God to bring transformation to their heart, to become a new person, not the same old person recycling the same old sins over and over and over again, but to become a brand new person. This is what the hope of not only a new identity, but also a new, new family involves and entails. Number three is we see that Jesus calls to action. So we see a sense of new mission. We see this happening kind of throughout the book of Acts. That God doesn't save us just so that we can one day have this like invisible ticket. I'm going to heaven. So I'm just going to continue to live life getting drunk, doing stupid things, making bad decisions, squandering my money, sitting in the back seat of a church, judging how the pastor dresses and how loud the music is and complaining about everything. But I'm going to heaven. That's not Christianity, bros, sisters. It's not. It's not. It's not. Jesus invites us to a brand new mission. Your life has value, has meaning, has purpose. God invites you to partner with him to be a part of the work that he's doing in this world, of preaching the gospel, of demonstrating grace and kindness to all through our words, what we say, through our deeds, what we do. So it, it, it does involve action. It does involve something that we do. But first and foremost, it's not what we do, it's who we are. And that's where the idea of identity comes in. So if you get this misplaced or out of order, then we become a community of people that we are only concerned about what we're doing, and therefore we can slip and slide and move and drift into this status where it doesn't really matter about who you are. It just matters what we call all the stuff that we're doing. But the issue is God transforms us to become new people, and by becoming new people, we have a new mission, a new purpose in life. It's going to be different for all of us. Some of you, it may look like going and being what we would call classically as a missionary. For others, it means you see the mission field that God's given you at MindBody or at Cal Poly or as a teacher somewhere or as an architect or someone that's, you know, sweeping the ground downtown uh, as a custodian or whatever. You see 
the whole world ahead of you, in front of you, as like this mission field. Or if you're a mom and your focus right now for the next you know, 10, 12, 15 years of your life is, is, is being a mommy, uh, your mission field is right in front of you in the form of these little kids. Um, that God, there, there's value in all these things, but it's a brand new idea of mission. And then finally, we see that in order to do all this well, we need a new form of power. And this is what we see that Jesus empowers. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his people, he says, guys, wait around, hang out. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. When he does, he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. You guys, we cannot do this on our own. We can't do this with good intentions. We can't be the people that God calls us to be. We can't live according to a new identity, live within a new family, live with a brand new mission, apart from this new power that God gives us. This is what God invites us to, is to trust him, to receive this gift of life and power that he offers us so freely. I want to finish with a quote that's one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's by C.S. Lewis. And I want you to just think about this. I'm, I'm, if you've been around here for any length of time, you've, you've heard this. I actually haven't said this quote in a very long time, maybe a couple months, maybe even longer. So if, anyways, I'll just read it. Just listen. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but rather too weak. We're like half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You guys, um, as we finish this book, as we enter into the Advent season, I want you to think about this. Because some of you, 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 you play games with God. I mean, just to be straight up front and honest, you play games with God. You think Christianity is about being a part of a club, just some sort of a routine. It's not. You can call that Americanized Christianity if that's, if that's what you want. But it's not, it's not the book of Acts. It's not what we see portrayed within the hearts of those with whom have been given new life, new family, new mission, new power, and the invitation of the gospel is always to come and receive from God. And yet, at some point, it has to be these questions that we address. Am I far too easily pleased? Am I willing to settle, like C.S. Lewis points out, settle like a child, content playing with mud pies, getting filthy, getting soiled, getting dirty, when in reality that child has been offered a vacation at sea, Right? A carnival cruise, all-you-can-eat food, all-inclusive meal, everything is right there for you. Yeah, I'd be happy to just play with mud pies. The invitation from God to you is to say, recognize the potential that God has called you to, to receive it, to become a new person, not just new, do new things. This is not about an invitation of just do, becoming a better person. It's about becoming a new person, a different person. It's not about acting like you belong to a new family. It's about becoming part of a new family. Stop living in the margins. Stop living isolated. Enter in to what God has for you. That's the invitation. It's always the invitation. That's what the gospel is. It's about saying to you, look, all of us, we've all gone astray. 
We've all been blinded. We've all been wowed by false lights and false glory. And we've all given our hearts to other things. And they've always led us down to a path of further compounded brokenness. And the invitation from Jesus is to say, repent from that. Turn away from that. Identify it for what it is and where it led you and how it betrayed you and how it deceived you to enter into the life that God has. Not only right now, but throughout all eternity with the king. The king who came in a manger, humbled himself. The king that went to the cross, the king that was throned, not in glory as we typically would know on his judgment day, but within a crown of thorns, and the king that one day will come again, and we will all, mind you, we will all stand before him. How will you plead? How will you stand? Will you stand ashamed, or will you stand with a sense of assurance that God has given you life, that your life has been claimed by this king that from all eternity knew you, welcomes you, invites you, promises to make all things new in your life and will transform you. The invitation is always to trust this God, to stop making mud pies, to stop living in your own self-made and perpetuated defilement and to receive the gift that Jesus gives. So, we're going to respond now. I'm going to have you guys all stand. We're going to sing. We'll partake of communion. And it'll be a way of reminding ourselves. If you're here this morning, as we oftentimes throw the invitation out, if you need prayer, we want to pray for you. Like if there's things that are going on in your life right now and you just realize that I am far from God. My heart has been hardened to God. My eyes have been blinded to God. Yeah, maybe I've known certain data and information and thoughts about God. But the real compelling narrative of the beauty of Jesus has always been something that I, I just don't quite get. I don't understand how others can sing to this Jesus and be compelled by this Jesus. He's just a dude. But the invitation for you is to ask God to give you new eyes, to see him with a new light, to have your heart healed by this God. It's not offering just to take care of your broken life, but he loves you. He's compelled, motivated, moved by his profound love for you. So let me just encourage you guys. In fact, if you'd like, why don't you close your eyes right now, and if you would like, why don't you just lift out your hands as a way of receiving. And the invitation for you is to just ask God, God, come and please show me areas of my heart. I want to receive from you right now as a son, as a daughter that is in need of you. For some of you, that might be salvation. You are not a follower of Jesus today. And right now, you know that you want to be. And for you, it's praying, Jesus, make me someone that is faithful, that loves you, that knows the love that you have. For some of you, it might just be your you're, you're lost. You've been making mud pies. And the invitation for you is to, to recognize where you've been living, the zone that you're at, and to say, God, move me. Take my hands and lead me into a place of newness. So let's take a moment, a few moments to just quiet your heart, to ask God, to invite God. I'll pray, and then we'll just sing.